is Benny Johnson actually came from Women in Labour. Oh. oh my God! <laughs> it actually was Women in Labour rocking their pelvis that started people doing belly dancing. So belly dancing has been a traditional labour pain relief method for years. It's nothing new. These videos you see of women dancing their babies out, that's exactly what you should be doing. Upright mobile. مرحبا أنا كارين أبو جودة أنا سارة رسلان وأنا ميس عمران Welcome to الأمومة Real talk guys We'll be taking you through all the stages of pregnancy and motherhood and diving into the stuff no one talks about From fears and anxieties, sex drive to social stigmas We will be sharing our personal experiences with you and of course welcome various special guests to share their journeys and learnings too And most importantly, hear from you, mamas. This is your podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where we'll be taking all your awesome questions. Don't shy away, mamas, or even papas. All sorts of questions are welcome. Just remember, folks, we are not medical professionals. We are mamas sharing our experiences with you. All thoughts and opinions expressed are our own. Welcome to this special, special episode. We'd like to welcome such a lovely woman known as the UAE's leading midwife educator and baby whisperer, Cecile Descali. Thank you for having me. Cecile, we are so excited to have you. For those of you who don't know about our amazing baby whisperer, she is a qualified midwife with over 25 years of experience in pre and postnatal care education. Cecile has been in the region since 1997, and you know our focus is here in the Middle East. So this episode is dedicated to that birthing hour. So with Cecile's expertise, we're going to walk through all the stages of labor, debunk some common myths, and go through what happens when the time comes to finally meet your little one. Welcome, Cecile. Again, we're so excited to hey, have you Cecile. with us. Hey, Cecile. Marhaba. <laughs> I, I'm very excited about what you ladies are doing. I think it is really, really important. Thank, Thank you. you. And so we're much. so honored to have you with us. We want to dive right into that brain and pick at all that knowledge that you have there. <laughs> My absolute passion is teaching mothers about birth. So instead of going into birth blindly and feeling like they've got a lot of pressure on them, a lot of things that they've got to make decisions about that they don't understand, that we actually make them help them understand what the process is, how it should naturally flow, and how to make those right decisions for themselves. Because in fact, there is no absolute right decision. It depends on each mother individually. Absolutely. So since we're focusing on natural delivery for this episode, Cecile, can you, I mean, we know that there are four stages of labor. So we want to dive right into each stage and dissect it, you know, stage by stage. So can you talk to us about the first stage of labor, you know, the effacement, the dilation phase of labor? So midwives like to talk about the first stage of labor in phases, And when we divide it up into phases, that makes a mom often feel like she 
can't achieve or she's not meeting expectations. So where how you're describing it in effacement and dilatation to me is the best way to think about it. That first stage of labor is when your contractions begin, when your cervix thins out, when your cervix opens up and your waters will break at some point in that phase. And it's all about moving towards what we would think of is the magic number, 10 centimeters. So in that phase, you're experiencing contractions, you're experiencing emotions. And this is the phase where basically your husband is really, really useful because he knows you best of all. He can anticipate what you need. This is when he should be helping you change position, encouraging you to be upright as much as possible because the upright position, gravity, helps the head of the baby descend, move down through the pelvis. And your baby is continuously turning both backwards and forwards to negotiate the amazing pelvis. I absolutely love it when I talk about the pelvis. So that first stage of labor is all about making progress. And progress shouldn't be measured or limited in time. It should be seen as something that works hand in hand, effacement, dilatation, and descent. And it doesn't matter how long it takes as long as mom and baby are well. We often in this stage are monitoring the mom and baby. We're doing vaginal examinations. And I really don't enjoy doing too many vaginal examinations. So they should be limited to when it's necessary, if something is changing with the mother, if something needs to be assessed. I I, I wanted to highlight that I, in my mind, first of all, um, I didn't know there were four stages of labor and I'm a woman. I actually thought, I thought there were just three up until, you know, we're having this episode. And I know, <laughs> I know <laughs> I should do a little bit more research. Eh? Um, and another thing is, uh, I thought that you just weighed out your first stage of labor and just lay down. I didn't even know that you have to be up. So you actually actively have to support the baby descent. Well, the best way to get the baby to move through the pelvis. So let me describe the pelvis. It's a rigid bony structure that during your labor with the aid of the hormone relaxin can actually open up. Now, it doesn't mean the bones actually kind of move apart, but they, because of the cartilage in the front on the symphysis pubis joint and the cartilage on the sacroiliac joints at the back, it enables the pelvis to expand. And the best expansion is when you're upright and mobile. This is when the baby is able to then turn and negotiate those bony landmarks. So 10% of labors will start with waters breaking first. So this is one of the biggest myths, actually. So in all the movies, it's, oh, my God, my water broke. But that actually only happens in 10% of women. Yes. 90% start with contractions first and the water's breaking later. And what we mean by later is a majority of births, waters will break about 8 or 9 or 10 centimeters. And if they don't break by that point, we will go in and break them. 
because the placenta and the bag of the waters is basically synonymous. They're basically one almost organ, if you want to call it that. So we need to open the bag of waters to allow the baby to pass. But the bag of waters has a very important function. It protects your baby from any kind of pressure on it. It keeps your baby perfectly warm. It nourishes your baby. Baby breathes in the water to mature its lungs. But most importantly to me as a midwife is the bag of waters puts an even pressure on your cervix to help it open evenly. So if we have to break the bag of waters, that's because there's a concern with the baby's heartbeat or your contractions are really not being effective and we need to help the labor progress because in the water is the amazing hormone oxytocin. And oxytocin is such a good hormone that it's written about and translated into multiple languages by Michelle O'Dant. Michelle O'Dant is a French surgeon who basically got fascinated with how women birthed and started to explore this hormone. He calls it the hormone of love and calm because it's secreted best when you feel relaxed. It's yeah. secreted best alongside melatonin, which is the hormone of darkness. So tonight I'm sitting in bright lights, but in a labor room, the light should be really dull because it's that dullness that secretes melatonin, which enhances oxytocin. So the more upright you are, means the more pressure from this bag of waters on the cervix, means the head can negotiate that pelvis because it's opening up. And then the more calm you are, the more relaxed the environment is, the more feeling of kind of love and, and tenderness there is, the more melatonin is secreted along with oxytocin to make your contractions effective. As a midwife as well, I get really upset when I hear people saying, your contractions aren't strong enough. They may well be very, very strong. You may well be feeling them, but are they doing what they're meant to do? Are they dilating the cervix? And in a first time mom, the cervix will thin out, efface before it dilates. And the best way to describe that is to say your cervix is long, like your finger before you fall pregnant. It shortens to and softens to like your nose when you fall pregnant. But actually, when you start going into labor, your cervix actually becomes what we term ripened or favorable, meaning it's becoming as soft as your lips. And then effacement means it's thinning out to be as thin as your fingernail. The uterus is like a small fist sitting in the pelvis. It weighs about 50 to 100 grams. And when you fall pregnant, it starts to grow like a balloon. You've got ligaments that tie the uterus into the pelvis, and these ligaments stretch along with the uterus growing. And as this uterus grows up into this amazing big balloon, the inner muscles, which are circular, start to thin out. When you start to contract, the longitudinal outer muscles shorten and shorten. A lot of women think that the uterus contracts down and goes back up. But actually, it's like 
it's evicting your baby. It's literally going down and relaxes, goes down some more and relaxes. And it's tiny, tiny movements at one stage. And all the time, the cervix is pulling up in to line with the uterine muscles to open up what we now term the birth canal, where the uterus, the cervix, and the vaginal walls all become one to allow your baby to be able to be born. And it's only when your cervix is fully dilated, moved right back into the walls of the uterus, that the baby can actually move into the birth canal. That's so fascinating. It's amazing what a woman's body goes through. Me for me. But you know, Cecile, you're talking about the contractions and you took me back <laughs> to, <laughs> to my contractions. Oh, Cecile, like the pain was just... So my question before complaining... Um, my <laughs> you're allowed to complain, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The... The pain level at this point sometimes gets so intense. Can you maybe tell us, you know, some pain relief options that people can visit at this point? Yeah, so a lot of women find that the contractions actually frightening because they don't expect to have that intensity. And, and I like the word discomfort more than pain but then again, like I said in the beginning, how do we say something is not strong when actually you are feeling it? So how do we feel your pain? And the best form of pain relief, actually, at this point, before you even leave home, is warm water. Sitting in a shower, sitting in a bath, and your husband. Having your husband close by doing very, very simple things like light touch massage. And in prenatal classes, I always say to the ladies, give your husband your arm and then he's to use his fingers lightly on the arm because that brings your body's natural narcotic endorphins to that area. Endorphins are actually a stress hormone, but when they are in high levels, they act as a pain relief. So walking, and I know when I say walking, women say, really? Walking is going to help my contractions? But actually movement, rocking your pelvis, belly dancing. It, belly dancing actually came from women in labor. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it actually was women in labor rocking their pelvis that started people doing belly dancing. So belly dancing has been a traditional labor pain relief method for years. It's nothing new. These videos you see of women dancing their babies out, that's exactly what you should be doing. Upright, mobile, having someone use light touch massage. My, one of my favorite tools is a tennis ball for massaging on your lower back, for massaging your neck area. And then of course your husband's being there with you, being the person to do this that just takes it a step higher. And we tend to have forgotten how important the man is in the birthing room because for many years, especially here in the Middle East, we kicked them out. We told them it's woman's work, go. 
that the miracle of your baby being born is so much more than just um, a mother giving birth. It's a family being created. And the person who helped create that family is the husband. And when a man witnesses that, he bonds with his baby so much better than when he only gets handed a child afterwards. And I truly think that men respect women once they've witnessed birth. Because you ladies, I know for you it was not the most comfortable kind of time in your life. But honestly, how strong are you as women? Oh, yeah. yeah. So true. I, I talk about the mom stretch. And that's when you put your arms up. You bring your hand down behind your back. You're stretching out nicely and you give yourself a big pat. <laughs> We're all doing it now. We're all doing it now. We're all tapping ourselves. <laughs> Honestly, just falling pregnant is actually brave. To take on a lifelong commitment to this little being inside of you. And it is lifelong. I promise you. They don't go away at 18 or 19 or 20 they stay around a lot longer. And then they give you another commitment. They give you grandchildren. <laughs> but it's such an amazing thing. You, you can actually think, if you think about it, some days you want to throw your children away. And other days, one smile makes you jump with joy. So, And that's how labor should be viewed. This is one of the most amazing, miraculous things that your body can conceive grow a baby, and then give birth to a baby. And yes, it isn't comfortable. You need to expect to feel your contractions. But the contractions should be a signal that your baby that you've been looking to meet is arriving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cecile, just speaking of contractions, I think that um, it would be helpful to talk about at what point do we go to the hospital if we start feeling those contractions at home? Okay, absolutely. So we suggest you start moving to hospital if your contractions are five minutes apart, lasting one minute, and or your waters have broken, and or if you are not comfortable which can mean your contractions might be 10 minutes apart, lasting 30 seconds, but you are no longer feeling like you are in control of your feeling and your discomfort level, and therefore you should be making your move towards the hospital because if you are considering an epidural and there's nothing wrong with considering an epidural as a form of pain relief in labor, then you would be looking at having that epidural at around about four centimeters. And when your contractions are roughly between five and 10 minutes apart, you've most likely, not definitely, but most likely passed the three centimeter mark. So once you've passed that three centimeter mark, you're making your way into hospital and you can't measure it so you can only do it on your contractions. You were talking about having an epidural or when you can get an epidural at four centimeters. Is there a cutoff time to when you can't? So yes, sometimes 
and different hospitals have different policies on this. We discourage an epidural after eight centimeters. And the reason is, this is the final kind of phase of first stage of labor. And I love this phase of labor. We call it the transition phase. It's the shortest phase, but it is the most intense and most emotionally erratic phase. This is where you maybe didn't want an epidural, but you're saying, get me an epidural. Everything your husband's been doing, like lovely cold cloths to wipe your face, rubbing your hand during contractions, rubbing your feet afterwards, you're all like, that's not working. What are you doing that for? <laughs> so this phase is part of where the mother says, yes, I want to have this baby now. No, no, hold on. I'll have more contractions. I'm not quite ready. She's going through a real excitement, frightened phase at this point. And it only lasts about 20 minutes before she calms down, feels ready for birth. And then she can be, if not already in the, in the birthing suite, she can be moved to the birthing suite to actually give birth. And this does not mean that you're going to start pushing. And what happens, Cecile, if um, at that point the contractions start slowing down? Does that happen? It, it's, it's not impossible that your contractions might slow down at this point. In fact, your contractions give you a little bit of a resting phase at this point to kind of catch your breath before they come back to finally help push the baby out. Those muscles that have been thinning out and being pulled up have bunched together at the top of the uterus to actually push your baby basically through the birth canal. It's the strongest muscle in the body at this point. And some women do find that at this exact moment, they seem to lose their contractions. Upright, moving, walking, the contractions will come back. Be patient. Your body is actually giving you a little bit of a rest to now have the energy to push. Unfortunately, a lot of times the medicalization of birth, this is the moment where an IV gets put in and artificial oxytocin gets given instead of patience. Um, Cecile, you know, one, one thing that really surprised me and it's something that I had no idea existed until I took your class was the mucus plug. Yes. <laughs> I never heard about it ever from ev any woman that I ever spoke to. There was no, it, it was not even a, it, it's exactly how it sounds, but I didn't <laughs> know what that meant. I'm like, can you tell us what to expect with this? Well, there are four signs of labor. Two are maybe signs of labor. Two are definite signs of labor. So the first maybe sign of labor is actually diarrhea. And the reason diarrhea, and it's not really loose-loose, but it's, you're aware it's more than normal. And that's because the pelvis and the baby's head will compress the lower part of the bowel. We want a nice smooth ride for the baby so your body gets rid of anything in its way. And 
This doesn't mean that diarrhea, you're going into labor. You could have eaten a dodgy chicken and that's why you've got diarrhea today. <laughs> Second maybe sign of labor is that show. And midwives get really excited about these things. You guys would be excited if you were getting dressed tonight to go to the Dubai Opera House. We get excited about a jelly-like mucousy plug that has been blocking the mouth of the uterus for the last nine months because the cervix has an internal and an external opening that are both tightly closed at this point. When you get closer to your actual day of giving birth, with the ripening and becoming favorable of the cervix, that kind of softening up, the external part starts to open a little bit. And that's when this mucousy plug starts to come away. You do have a very thin vaginal discharge at the same time. And this is because the vaginal pH that was acidic to protect your baby from anything coming up to the uterus has become alkaline. And this thin vaginal discharge means you often end up with a panty liner on basically because you feel wet all day long. And moms confuse this discharge with the show. The show is stringy and mucousy. And there's only one good way to describe it. It's like you've blown your nose. It's that kind of mucousy. The closer towards labor you get, the more that external us is opening, the show becomes blood flecked. Now we'll always say that in pregnancy, blood is not normal, but this blood flecked show is normal. But when you call the hospital and we suggest you do if you're worried, the midwives will talk to you and if you tell them that you think there's more than a teaspoon of red blood, we will tell you to come into the hospital because we don't want you to stay at home and there be any complications. Most times it's the show, there's no problems, and we reassure the mom, we know how far dilated she is now and labor is progressing. So abnormality will be more than a teaspoon of blood. Are there, are there any other signs we need to look out for that's, that, that indicates some form of abnormality that we need to immediately contact the hospital slash midwife? So if you had a headache, frontal headache, that doesn't go away, if you had blurred vision, if you had bad epigastric pain, if you had any sharp one-sided pain, then you need to be calling your doctor or the hospital and go in. But there's never any harm in calling if you are not comfortable. The midwives would rather speak to you, see you if necessary and reassure you than actually have you come in when you should have been in a lot, lot, lot earlier. Your baby towards 36 weeks will slow its movement down. It's very normal to slow movement down at this point. And you as the mom know your baby's movements have not decreased, but slowed. So you would be monitoring normal movement for your baby at this point. You would be monitoring if movement increased 
as well. You would be making sure and calling the hospital if you felt too much movement. I remember as well, Cecile, that if you are one of those 10% whose water does break before contractions, that looking at the color of the water is also something that we should try and do if possible. So your two definite signs of labor, the first one is the bag of waters breaking. We know that when the bag of waters breaks, there's no stepping back. We can't close them up. Baby is going to be born. So when the bag of waters breaks, we do suggest you move to the hospital. But how do you know this is actually the bag of waters? Because your baby's head is sitting very low and on your bladder at this point. So you could have been laughing and, oops, wet yourself. The difference is, if it looks like urine and it smells like urine, put a sanitary towel on. If it stays wet, no, you didn't wet yourself. But otherwise, yes, you probably did. You're looking at the color. It's normally clear. Sometimes it's got little bits in it, but clear fluid. The odor, it's what we say characteristic. So if it's got a foul smell to it as well, you would go to the hospital. The amount, it gushes and spinnies and it trickles at home. And if it's a trickle and you're thinking, I'm not sure, again, Put a sanitary towel on, walk around. If it stays wet, then you know, please go to the hospital. The time is important, but less important because what happens if you actually were sleeping when your waters broke? You woke up in a puddle. So as long as you know an average time, so it happened about six o'clock. Okay, so remember, you're going to get your coat color, odor, amount, and time, and go to the hospital when your waters break. And if your waters break and you're not contracting, they will admit you, they will observe you, and your doctor will discuss with you if you don't start contracting within a period of time, your doctor will discuss augmenting that, helping that labor along with artificial oxytocin. Sarah, didn't that happen with you? Yeah, actually, I was going to say I, I was um, part of that 10%. I was the movie uh, <laughs> scene uh, <laughs> woman who jumped out of bed because I heard a <laughs> and my water broke. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, then the contractions came after, um, quite a bit after, actually, once I got to the hospital. Up to 12 hours after your waters break, if you're not contracting, you most likely will start contracting. Oh. Otherwise, we'll augment that labor. There is so much that happens in the first stage of labor. Um, but I think for, for me, the most exhilarating experience was probably the second and third stage. The second is when the baby is moving through the canal. Is that right, Cecile? Can you tell us a bit what mom is going through and baby is going through during second stage labor? So the second stage of labor is from 10 centimeters dilated to the birth of the baby. Now, because you're 10 centimeters does not mean you need to start pushing. I will tell moms, breathe, 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 
and breathe again, even when you think you can't. Unless there's a concern where your doctor asks you to push. Basically, your baby is now moving through the vaginal canal, through the pelvis, and about to engage on what is we call the perineal skin. The perineum is a small muscle, a sheet, it's quite a large muscle, but in um, context of other muscles, it's small because it is the hammock that holds up all your abdominal wall organs. And it is what has been holding your baby up through your pregnancy. This perineum now needs to stretch and open. It's a figure of eight muscle. And the part of the muscle that we're focusing on is the figure of the part of the figure of eight around the vaginal area. And that has to start to stretch. So as your baby's head moves down and we, we talk about it engages with that muscle, it starts to help it stretch and open up to allow the head to crown. Crowning is when the head starts by coming a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then sits on the perineum, stretching it to the fullest. A lot of mothers will describe that at this point, they feel a stretching, burning sensation. Midwives and doctors describe it as the ring of fire. And that's because the blood supply has been cut off so that now you've got no more sensation. Often this is when, if we needed to, we'd be choosing to cut an episiotomy. An episiotomy is not cut routinely. It's cut to protect the baby or protect the mother. So a lot of times it's cut in a preterm baby. It's cut if the baby's getting a little bit distressed. But most times it's cut because we're seeing that even though it's stretched beautifully, it looks like it's going to tear. And we would rather control and cut away from any structures and muscles that could be severely affected afterwards by cutting, by, sorry, by allowing, by allowing it to tear, it could affect other structures and muscles and have long-term effects. However, by cutting, we protect those other areas. So we cut to protect the mother's structures around that area. I'm watching May's face. <laughs> She's like, what? I'd rather not have known this. I don't know if it was a good idea that I won this uh, on this episode. I've done the Kegel exercises like 20 times already as you're speaking. I wanted to ask you about um, natural tearing. Um, the midwives in Canada for, for my sister, because she just gave birth, they recommended she naturally tears because they told her it heals faster and better. Actually, I will say yes and no to that answer. If your tear is going to be small and not involve the muscle too much, then yes, please allow it to tear. When I'm teaching, I talk about if you take your hand and you feel like what I'm doing here, that's your perineum and you can feel the muscle in your hand. Now, if you widen your hand like that and you feel here, that's the skin and how the muscle moves away in your, on your perineum. So if this part that only has skin is going to tear, then we should leave it to tear. 
And that certainly will happen here in Dubai. But if we can see down in this area where the muscle is, that there's an area of weakness, we watch it. If we think it's getting bigger, we often will cut away from it because this area of weakness could tear extensively. So there's an important part that you need to do as a mom, and that is perineal. It's perineal massage, but it's actually perineal stretching. And does that actually help? Absolutely. So before I came to Dubai, I worked independently in South Africa, and all our women were taught to either use a product called the Epino, or we taught them perineal stretching with their thumbs. And it's a simple procedure to sit on the toilet seat with your knees open, put a mirror down on the floor because you can't see otherwise, and just Make sure your thumbnails are short and go in, pull down and out. And when you feel a stinging sensation, hold it for five seconds and repeat this about 10 times, probably three or four times in a week. I liken it to running the Dubai Marathon. You certainly wouldn't go and run the Dubai Marathon without training. So we should train that perineal muscle prior to birth to anticipate that stretching feeling. When do we start that training? 36 weeks. You don't do it before 36 weeks because the perineal floor contains oxytocic receptors. So you could actually encourage contractions by doing it. And that's why your contractions at the moment of birth are more intense because of that pressure on that perineal floor, encouraging those oxytocic receptors. Wow. Cecile, should we be avoiding other forms of pleasure down there as well after 36 <laughs> weeks? No, no, those are good. <laughs> so um, your husband is the oldest induction in the world. Oh, wow. Semen contains prostaglandin, which will soften and ripen the cervix, not put you into labor. And the difference between when we give it artificially, when you as a couple administer it, you actually give it in the right doses. Your body and your husband's body know exactly the right dose for you. Wow. That's, oh, and, and is there a specific position? Whatever's comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very little these days, I must say. <laughs> Plus, do you know the release in, and I'm going to just say the word, in an orgasm, the release is oxytocin. Yes. Right. It's a pleasure hormone as well. So that oxytocin release helps your contractions. Michelle O'Donnell has books written that could not come into Dubai. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, because the things he tells you to do would not be seen as culturally allowed. So Barbara Harper reminded me of what we say to women as, as midwives. And, and actually, since she said it, I just decided to heck with it. I'm going to tell everybody. We tell you to get juicy so you can get Lucy. I love it. <laughs> Give your husband a good kiss. That will help your contractions. So if you arrive in the hospital 
and your contractions seem to have faded away after they seem to be really good when you were at home, sit and give your husband a kiss in the car before you get out. Oh my, you know, Cecile, I was, I was 10 days late to have my daughter. And I remember on my due date, waiting for the evening to not feel contractions, looking at my husband and tell him, we need to have sex right now. <laughs> this needs to happen right now. <laughs> if for any reason, the prostaglandin from your husband isn't doing its job, you can use things like evening primrose oil. Okay. You can take it orally, and after 36 weeks, you can actually take it vaginally. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you prick the little capsules and squirt it inside, and as high up as possible. And evening primrose oil is a natural form of induction, other than things like castor oil, which I don't suggest you do. Okay. okay. Castor oil gives you intense diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, it's just nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one of my colleagues when I was working at American Hospital gave her sister castor oil. Of course, she, excuse me, she had a really precipitate labor, a very quick labor. And I afterwards, I said, you're just nasty. I'm sorry. As, as a doctor, I would never give that to my family. Oh, my goodness. So, and it doesn't work with every woman, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, most women, it, it does. It kind of causes the bowel to massage the uterus and cause very effective contractions. So let's go back to the second stage of labor, to that moment of crowning, where if you have been pushing, your doctor or midwife is going to say, breathe, don't push. Why? Because behind the perineum is a nose and a chin. And if you push too fast, you possibly then will tear. So we want you to breathe, breathe, breathe. We can feel the nose as it's coming around the corner. We tell you to give a cough. Then we can feel the chin, give a cough. And a very important fact for the dads, like you said, we've all watched the movies. Babies are not born pink, fully clothed, covered in syrup, crying. Babies are often born very blue. And that head arrives and it already stops doing anything. And the dad's like, um, baby's blue. Maybe we should get baby out. What are we waiting for? We know as the baby's head turns, we know so the shoulders turn. And we're feeling for cord around the neck, which is common. And we can loop it over most times. On the odd occasion, we need to clamp, cut, and unwind. And then we can actually help the top shoulder out, help the bottom shoulder out, and place the baby on the mother's abdomen. But the dads are watching this baby being born, and the color doesn't make sense. It takes your baby one minute from when their head is born and then their chest is released to start to breathe properly and oxygenate their bodies properly. There's no danger. There's no harm. We warm them. We dry them. And the minute later, they start crying. They pink up beautifully. And six weeks later, you come to see me and try to give me back the baby to stop it crying. 
So I actually have a question, Cecile, at that point. Um, So uh, for me, we ended up uh, doing a a C-section after I uh, started going into labor um, because it wasn't progressing and um, the the baby was weighed or estimated to be weighed at 4.1 kilos. And so the doctor was concerned of the risk of possible shoulder dystocia. Yeah, okay. Um, so could you maybe just explain a little bit about that? Because I do know a few of my other friends did did encounter that um, when as the baby was coming out. So shoulder dystocia has got two sides to it. Shoulder dystocia can actually be when the baby has been born, we haven't waited for those shoulders to rotate properly. We've started to pull and we've actually almost got the shoulders in a transverse diameter instead of a longitudinal longitudinal diameter. So sometimes shoulder dystocia is a little bit of impatience. But in a baby over four kilograms, and I'm not sure, was your baby eventually over four kilograms, Sarah? Yeah, she was (laughs) 4.1. So in a big baby that's over four kilograms, there is a concern that the shoulders won't rotate and will get locked and we will struggle to get them out. And shoulder dystocia can happen without anything kind of making like any impatience or anybody doing anything wrong, especially in a big baby, because there's just not enough space to turn. And this is why, look, as a midwife, we can criticize doctors and say, oh, no, you know, they shouldn't have done that cesarean. They shouldn't have done that induction. But we shouldn't because today birth is safe. And that's because of good prenatal care, ultrasounds that show us things that we couldn't previously see. So in in a case like yours, I would be saying that I know your waters broke and then they tried to let you go into labor. You did go into labor, but didn't progress your doctor gave you the best chance to see, would this baby negotiate the pelvis? The baby said no. And therefore she made the decision to do the cesarean. That was a really good, well-managed birth. And a lot of women sit like yourself. How, how old is your little one now? She's just turned one a couple of days ago. Okay, so a lot of times you spend that year thinking, should have had that cesarean. Was it really necessary? Could they have tried harder? And actually, you need to then heal and know that actually that the fact that you didn't go into labor, even when your waters broke, effectively means that your baby said, I can't come this way, sorry. So your doctor listened appropriately. And a lot of women who almost end up with postnatal depression from the fact that they think that doctors are all about rushing them in for cesareans, about the convenience and the price and the extra money. And that's truly not what it's about. The the nice thing about working here in Dubai, we're a small community. And I hear about doctors every single day. You know, clients come and tell me, oh, my doctor did this, oh, my doctor did that. And a lot of times 
I meet these doctors, I talk with them, I understand their practice. And if we take that woman's notes, most times the doctor would have done the right thing. I don't think there's very many times here in Dubai we have had to say, and, and, and would never say to a mother, but, you know, we have felt that the doctor was actually not appropriate. And that's, a, we've got a wonderful community of doctors. We are very, very lucky to have the standard of care we do here. Yes, we are. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. We're very, very lucky. Cecile, yeah. um, honestly, I feel like I'm reliving my birth. Um, <laughs> I remember in the second stage when Chloe, her head came out and her shoulders came out. The rest was, you literally feel like they just slip out. That's That's how I felt. And then third stage of labor, baby is born. And again, if it weren't for Cecile's class, I didn't know that there was a placenta delivery. Yeah. <laughs> so what's that all about? What? I thought it was over. The placenta, and, and as a midwife again, I just always think like these things are so amazing. This placenta has been growing your baby, protecting your baby from any harm, nourishing your baby with oxygen and food and it then has the hormones that start labor but at the end of the birth the placenta is a disposable organ it's the only organ in the body that we grow for a purpose and throw away we don't turn our placenta into little tablets or capsules you know <laughs> you can if you want to placenta encapsulation is actually very beneficial. And women sometimes feel, oh, no, really, I don't want to. But some women feel they would like to use it. It increases the iron content for the mother after birth, and it does prevent postnatal depression. Plus, it enhances breast milk. Oh, that's so something I'm bad doing it. to do. <laughs> I'm but, doing it. So at the moment of birth, The baby is still connected to the cord unless we had to clamp and cut it. And we actively promote optimal cord clamping. There are two sides to this. Optimal cord clamping and what is called a lotus birth, where you don't even separate your baby at all. I don't encourage the lotus birth because it does entail carrying a placenta around with you for a couple of days. And I'm not a fan of that at all. I encourage not cutting the cord unless we have to for up to about 90 seconds to allow that little transfer of blood to the baby. Actually, it's not a little transfer. It's quite a lot of blood that goes to the baby at that point. And that gives your baby, doesn't mean if your baby doesn't have it that there's a problem, but it gives your baby an advantage on childhood anemia. So childhood anemia is a big problem in the world. And by doing optimal cord clamping, we've seen a reduction in it. And this is not for your baby at birth. It's actually as they grow older. And of course, there are other ways to protect your child against childhood anemia, good nutrition being one of them. However, this doesn't interfere with collecting cord blood stem cells. And cord blood stem cell collection does not interfere with the birth of the placenta. So what is cord blood? This is the most immature 
form of cells that we can harvest and preserve to use for treatment for future use, as in, in things like leukemia, sickle cell anemia, thalassemia, etc. So it's a really worthwhile thing to explore. However, once the cells have been harvested, we've allowed blood to transfer to the baby, we then give the woman an injection called symptometry. This is called active management of the third stage, and this causes crisscross muscle, muscle fibers in the uterus to clamp down and actually expel the placenta. And it ensures that the placenta is birthed completely and that there's no excess bleeding afterwards because those muscles seal off all the little vessels that connected the placenta to the uterus. So you don't have to push the placenta out. And you cough it out. Right? Does it hurt? Does it hurt? No, not at all. In fact, you, you've basically, by this point, you're ignoring us. You've got your baby. You're bonding and talking and then we say, give us a cough. And you're like, for what? <laughs> so we cough. Oh, the placenta. Forgot about that. But Cecile, this injection is done through the vagina. Inside. Into your knee, into your leg. Into your leg. Okay, I don't remember this. You don't. Do you know why? You've got your baby in your arms. Yeah. You're paying no attention to us anymore. And no. then if you had injections into the vaginal area, that possibly was local anesthetic to do any stitching. Oh, you're right. Yes, I did need stitching. Um, you know, my I was actually very lucky to have both my sisters and my mom in the delivery room. It made everything feel less clinical. And your husband. And, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, of course, my husband. But I remember my sister told me that her, you know, apart from seeing her, her niece being born, she said one of the most amazing things she saw was the placenta coming out. She said it looked like a blue and purple dragon's egg. This is how she described it. Oh, she said it like it changes color as you move it around. And she said it was beautiful. I, you know, I wouldn't have thought of it as something so beautiful, but it sounds magical. Well, it's the tree of life. If you lie a placenta out after a birth and you look at it, you'll see all the little branches that were going to the baby all come into the cord to basically nourish your baby. And actually, you're very right about the color. I've always thought it had like a mother of pearl look on the shiny side. And it, it does. In light, it can play different kind of colors on it. And as a midwife, I still get midwives sending me pictures today, basically saying, hey, sis, look at the strange placenta. I've seen heart-shaped placentas, moon-shaped placentas, placentas that were literally cut in half. And it's amazing that this is what grows your baby, maintains your pregnancy, and starts your birth. Beautiful. I, I just, it's amazing. And so the reason why Karen possibly didn't remember this placenta birth is, uh, is it, she was going through the golden hour, as it's called? Yes. And the golden hour is an amazing time of skin to skin. And when your baby is placed skin to skin on your chest, it's also called kangaroo mother care. 
You are normalizing blood pressure, pulse rate, color. You are helping them basically warm up or cool down. Plus, you are triggering by putting them flat on a mom's body about 20 different primitive reflexes, which are quite important, and help your baby then wire and bond with you in that position. Now, if a mom has a cesarean section, a lot of times they will say to me, I'm going to be denied this. No, you're not denied the golden hour. It is a delayed golden hour. You can still put your baby on your chest once you come back from the operating room, once you've kind of been brought back to the ward and baby's been brought back to you, there's no reason you can't do that golden hour then. Can the father do it instead? Yes, that's what I was about to say. And the best thing about a cesarean for the dads is they get to do that golden hour. And they are as effective as you are. Because why? Your child knows your husband's touch, smell, sound of his voice already. And I think it's so special when they can bond with their dads in that position. Absolutely. And uh, Cecile, I hate to come to the last stage of, uh, (laughs) of this journey with you, but the fourth stage is the recovery stage, isn't it? It is. It's the postpartum. And some people talk about it as the fourth stage of labor in the postpartum period is taking additional magnesium, having arnica actually after the birth to help with bruising and healing. And one of the other things that I really, really encourage is the use of shallow salt baths with additional tea tree, lavender, and even witch hazel added into them, especially if you've had a perineal cut. So you can make little sanitary towels, fill them with water, put these drops on them, freeze them. And then after the birth, you just pop that on your bottom. And it really, really helps. The cold as well as the oils. Such spas are traditionally done after birth for anyone who's had a perineal cut. But you can use it even if you didn't have a perineal cut, especially with the witch hazel, because that perineal skin is still going to be stretching and still possibly bruised a little bit. So the witch hazel is really, really good for any bruising. Here in Dubai, we don't get witch hazel oil. The only one I've managed to find is a facial toner. But I believe if it can go on my face, it can go down the bottom as well. (laughs) So it should be safe. And I know it's safe, should I rather say. Um, I use it all the time for women. And of course, this fourth stage is when you start breastfeeding. If that's what you've chosen. And so many women are being pressured about breastfeeding that we as a company and myself as a person, we actually take a step back. It is your choice. We are here to guide you through an amazing gift you can give your baby if you choose to breastfeed. It's not something you must do. And every woman's breastfeeding journey is slightly different. So what we really want to encourage is what we call laid back breastfeeding, where again, the baby's on your abdomen and the baby crawls up and attaches on the breast by itself. 
because we give you so many rules. I even talk the eight steps to attachment. You know, sit comfortably, have your cushion, baby to mummy, chin to the breast, nipple to the nose. And all of these things are actually done by the baby spontaneously in the laid back position. And if we encourage babies, we put onto our abdomens after birth, babies naturally crawl up and do this. I find that absolutely incredible. That's one of those... Uh... Um, baby instincts that you were referring to, right? When you... Yeah. They, they know what they want. They know where to go to get it. We just don't trust it any longer. And we don't trust that they can do it. Now, of course, every woman has got a bit of a different shape. So sometimes you do have to hold a breast. Sometimes you do have to angle things differently. But there's a way to do it that you and your baby are comfortable with. It was because of uh, because of this information that you gave me back in the day that when I had Chloe, um, within the first, you know, she was hungry immediately. So when she was on my abdomen, we all watched her move to the breast. And even when she was up high, she moved down. She wiggled herself down. The only thing I had to do was just because I, I'm... Uh, I have bigger breasts, so I had to just slightly move it. And it was a perfect latch. I didn't feel a thing. I was, it was just like, a, oh, this feels new, but it was perfect. You almost want to say it's a pleasant sensation. Absolutely. Oh, I felt on cloud a hundred mm. when that with that first latch. Mm. But then I think I think it was also the anesthesia. That was drugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might have played a little part in that. <laughs> and for the recovery, which is stage four, um, they usually recommend six weeks of bed rest. No. And not not no? at all. It's it's the 40-day culture where the misinterpretation is in bed. What it is, the 40 days, the six weeks, is woman taking care of you. You not taking care of anybody else but your baby. And even then, there should be women to help you take care of your baby. And that is something that I think even in the Emirati culture, we're missing it nowadays. You know, when I first came to the UAE, the Emirati culture was very much that 40 days. You go to your mother's house. She's got people there, your sisters, your aunts, her friends. They're all taking care of you. And actually today, with kind of distance, with careers, it's not happening as much as it used to. I actually had um, a privilege maybe two months ago now I went to do a home visit for a young lady and her mother was there and we did the breastfeeding consult and then we were talking and she said, how long have you been here? So I said, well, I came out here in 1997. And she said, where did you work when you came out here? I said, I was at American Hospital. And she smiled. And I said to her, did you give birth at American Hospital? She said, yes. And I said, who was your midwife? And she said, some South African girl <laughs> that worked there at the time. Two of the girls were colored ladies and myself. And I said to her, I said, was it a colored lady, a dark-skinned lady? 
And she said, no, it wasn't. It was a white lady. And I was like, could only have been me. Oh, my <laughs> oh, goodness. What are the odds? How amazing is that? That all these years later, I'm supporting her daughter with breastfeeding. That's oh, incredible. Beautiful. And now you're supporting us. I felt really privileged. And you're supporting us and so many women, so many women across the region. But Cecile, um, the reason I ask about the six weeks or the 40-day rest is because, so my girlfriends here know that I love to work out and I love my cardio and I'm a yogi, I'm a yoga instructor and I cannot wait to get back at it. But I understand that my abs are not in the, in the, in the same location. <laughs> Abdominal diastasis is something that is so misunderstood and you will understand what I'm saying more than other women, your abdominal muscles split to accommodate this growing uterus. And up to six weeks after, they actually need to realign. However, they don't need to come back together. What is important is you can do any sort of exercise with a pain limit except for abdominals before six weeks. And at six weeks, you need someone to check the loading of your abdominal muscle. Not that it's come back together. Even muscles that have actually come back together sometimes don't take a load properly. And that's when, if they're not loading properly, you can end up with a hernia and other abdominal um, discomfort and damage. And I can't even check abdominal load properly. I work alongside women's health physios and pre postnatal fitness trainers that actually can. And I'm sure that then you would know somebody who can check that load for you because it's important to check and get almost signed off before you start again. So that's also why they tell you to avoid bending over when in those, in that first, you know, month and a half, yeah, so we should never bend from our waist forward. We should always bend down on our haunches. Now, that's not always that easy to do because even coming up, you need that core muscle, that abdominal muscle. So we actually want pregnant women or postnatal women not to actually lift anything heavy that could involve activating that muscle. You lift the heaviest thing as your baby, and then, yes, we don't want you getting down and up uh, if we can avoid it. So, yep, I, I always remember hearing that this should happen, but not knowing why. And it is something I believe that it is taken often too lightly because I, I think I started off like that. As in, like, I want to be able to do stuff. I'm going to move this, you know, couch or chair. And then after understanding the repercussions that come with that it's not worth it mama deserves a rest you just need to take care of yourself and make sure the long term you is going to be okay unfortunately too many women feel they have to be independent and they don't they need to at this point give into that 40 days and allow their bodies to heal They've actually just given birth to a baby. That's a formidable thing. However, one of the things that is important um, is to know that you can start your pelvic floor exercises from the time you've given birth. 
oh. even if you've had a tear. And your husband should be doing pelvic floor exercises as well because actually that prevents <laughs> prostate cancer for them. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's a group exercise. You'll never be alone. It's a group exercise. Yeah. It's a family before the TV exercise kind of thing. <laughs> so, But it is important to strengthen that pelvic floor muscle because if you don't, remember it's holding up all the abdominal organs your uterus, your bladder especially. And women who have got a weak abdominal uh, pelvic floor muscle will often have prolapsed uterus, prolapsed bladders. And it's a really uncomfortable thing to have. So making sure that you tone that muscle after you've actually given birth is important. Actually, seeing a postnatal physio is, um, is really beneficial in that sense because you might actually think that your, you know, your muscles are stronger than they are, but when you go to the physio, they'll be like, you just need a bit more focus here. You need that exercise. Absolutely. And a good woman's health physio is priceless. Now, what is also important for women to understand is that, yes, you do leak urine and you do have gas escape from you at the most inopportune moments in that first six weeks. We're not saying in the first six weeks, you've got to be back to normal. Give your body time to heal, do your pelvic floor exercises. And then at six weeks, see a woman's health physio who can take you back to normal. So she can help you with things like pelvic alignment in pregnancy. She can help you with pelvic alignment after pregnancy because your pelvis has that beautiful hormone relaxin helping it open up and it takes six weeks to tighten back up but if it tightens a little bit off that can cause you a lot of backache later on so having someone making sure you're doing it right after six weeks is very very important and it's important not only for this pregnancy but for future pregnancies it's important for you being able to care for your little one you know, getting up and down off the floor with a baby. You don't realize how active a mom is. We do now. <laughs> I can't explain or tell you how beneficial this conversation was for me personally. Like, I have so much to think about. I know I'm, I have so much to talk about with Mazen after this. It's, it's, a, it's Cecile, you, wow. How many weeks are you, mate? I'm 36. So you could, if you wanted to, you could still do a set of prenatal classes. <laughs> Maybe after tonight, no. <laughs> I've done the prenatal class two weeks ago. They talked about the contractions, the minutes, what to bring in your hospital bag, um, when to go to the hospital. And it was online, you know, due, the, due to the pandemic, I couldn't physically be with anyone. And it was just uh, to a group of people for whoever joined. It was by MediClinic as well. That's why I made this effort to give our prenatal classes free. Because we give you a lot more education in them. Yeah, that's that's details I, I, I didn't know, honestly, and I haven't heard of before. So it's fantastic for any of the ladies uh, who are pregnant, then they can come and or they can register with Malak. Is that right? That's correct. They just if they email workshops at malak.me, they can then register. The, the ladies will send them on all the information 
They can register for the four classes. So, May, if you want to join us, please feel free to do to. that. <laughs> I would we love to. Because we haven't had time tonight to talk about cesarean section, not in depth. Things like what to expect, like with clotting, you know, wearing granny stockings, getting out of bed afterwards. So maybe just very briefly, what mom should know is post-recovery for a cesarean section, you will have 24 hours roughly where you've got up a drip and a urinary catheter. And then because the muscles in a cesarean are literally pulled apart a little bit, when you're getting out of bed, you must make sure you keep your muscles lined up, not twisting, not falling backwards, because that is where most of the pain will come from. Yes, the wound area has pain over it, but not as much as those abdominal muscles if you don't treat them gently. And one of the best things you can do when you're getting out of bed is rolling onto your side and putting your hands on the wound or a pillow on the wound and then taking a deep breath and standing up straight because when you don't again stand up straight and you bend over and hunched, your lower back will become really sore the next day. And then finally, tapering off your pain relief, not stopping it once you leave the hospital. Making sure you slow it down and taper it off, not just cut it off. That's very good advice. Thank you, Cecile. Pleasure. So, unfortunately, we don't want to... Can you come move in with us? Can you stay <laughs> with us? I'll come and save each of you for pregnancies. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. That would be great. Karen which, means you got to fall pregnant again. Which ho Well, I've just fallen pregnant again. So <laughs> I wanted to ask, which hospital do you work in? I don't, unfortunately, work at any hospitals any longer. Um, it's There's a, a lady trying to set up a birthing center here. And I said to her, if she got it right, I would take on my own births again. Because oh. um, I, I chose to leave and do education and support rather than do the births because that way I can reach more women. So. Bless you, Cecile. You're an angel. Cecile, as we say in Arabic, bless you, seriously. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. I love what I do. I do love talking to pregnant women and teaching them. So I promise we could carry on, but I do think you've also got families to consider. Yes. <laughs> So, Cecile, before we end this conversation, one thing that we do like to end each episode with is giving uh, that one um, main bit of advice or tip that you would give um, for the women that are and the men that are listening to this episode. Um, so we've talked extensively about the four stages of the birthing hour and going into labor. Um what is the one main takeaway that we should, uh, you know, highlight, I guess? Well, there's so many, actually. And um, I've been listening to a podcast recently from a midwife um, that I have a lot of respect for, Karen Wilmot. She's called the virtual midwife. And I think one of the things that Karen says is that birth is not a medical event, it is a natural event. Women, yes, have been doing it for thousands of years. We are grateful to medicine to make, for making birth safer. But we must remember that it's your birth, not ours. Therefore, you are in charge. We're here to guide you. We're not here to tell you what to do. So you need to, as a 
partnership, as a husband and wife partnership, you need to be instinctively in tune with each other and basically trust that your body knows what to do and not treat it as a medical event. Treat it as what it is, a miracle. Wow, Cecile, goosebumps. <laughs> That's Karen, not me. But honestly, if you can, if you would like me to introduce you to Karen and you have her on the podcast, you will be amazed. Oh, oh wow. We would, that would love to. That would be, I mean, that would be amazing. We would love to connect with her. That's an honor. She actually worked in Muscat for many, many years. Oh, oh wow. So she's very familiar with the Middle Eastern practices and that. So that would be, you know what? I think we're all going to read up and listen to her podcast and do some research and we'll definitely ask you for her information. Yeah, I can send you her mobile. She's in South Africa, but she will gladly do this. Oh, oh thank you so much. Thank you. Cecile, thank you. And Ma'assalama, we'll be speaking to you soon, I know. Goodbye, everyone. Thank Inshallah. you for listening. Thank you, Cecile. Thank you, Cecile. Thanks, everyone. Ma'assalama. Ma'assalama. Bye.